Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to The Long Game with LZ and Leach from The Recount, where every week we talk about the biggest stories in sports and how they impact culture, politics, and business. I am LZ Granderson. He is not. I am not yet, though I'm working very hard to get there. (laughs) That's right, LZ. We have a very exciting show today because the first time in Long Game history, we have two different guests joining us discussing the same story because it is, fair to say, a big one. Yes, not to be a size queen at all, but it is a very big story. (laughs) Exactly. Michelle Beadle, formerly of ESPN and now the host of the Athletics What Did I Miss podcast, and Lindsay Jones, senior writer for The Athletic covering the NFL and my former colleague on the way to Sochi in the 2014 Winter Olympics. They're both going to help us wrap our brains around the trade of star quarterback Deshaun Watson to the Cleveland Browns and the massive and kind of gross new contract the team is giving him, even though Watson has been sued by 22 women for sexual harassment and assault. I think it's probably a little uncomfortable to be a Browns fan right now, LZ. Right now? They've had like four head coaches in three seasons. This is a whole different kind of discomfort. (laughs) It's probably the best way to put it. But yes, that is also true. And for all you hoop heads out there, we'll also be handicapping the race for the NBA scoring title, which is currently the tightest in NBA history. It's Tuesday afternoon, and last night, LeBron James took the lead by 0.2 percentage points over Joel Embiid and Giannis Antetokounmpo. He also stole Kevin Love's heart, if you saw that dunk. Hmm. Anyway, this could easily go down to the last game of the season. And Will, I don't think you have to ask who I'm pulling for, do you? St. Peter's small forward Doug Eddard, right? Obviously. Who's not rooting for that guy? (laughs) Obviously. Then we'll wrap up the show with this week in sports history and look back at the first time Larry Bird and Magic Johnson squared off against each other, starting one of the greatest rivalries sports has ever seen. But before we get to our top stories, LZ, what is your sports mood today? My sports mood, my friend, I'm feeling very patriotic this morning. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, should we play some Lee Greenwood or do we have to pay Lee Greenwood? We don't, I don't want to pay Lee Greenwood. <laughs> no, no, no. Do not play no. Green, Lee Greenwood. I'm not giving that guy any royalties. No. We finally had an American man under the age of 30 win a Masters 1000 tennis tournament <laughs> thanks to Taylor Fritz. And while I'm sure a lot of people are like going, what's a Masters 1000? What's a Taylor Fritz? What's a Taylor Swift? What are you talking about? I'm talking about this. We haven't had a U.S. man win a major in tennis since Andy Roddick won the U.S. Open before Roger Federer (laughs) was even a thing. That's how long ago it was. And we finally got a glimpse 
of a young, athletic, and talented man on the tennis side winning a big-time tennis tournament for the first time in almost two decades, at least someone who's young anyway. And I'm just really optimistic that maybe, just maybe, Will, America can finally matter in tennis again, at least on the men's side. Why are we bad at this? Is it the metric system? It's probably the metric system. <laughs> I wouldn't say that we're bad at it. I would say that everyone's really good at it. Oh, okay. Much of the past 20 years since Andy Roddick won the U.S. Open has been dominated by three of the greatest players to ever pick up the racket at the same time. And none of them are American. (laughs) (laughs) And none of them are American. But they have 61 combined majors. Not a lot of room for John Isner. So So think about this for a second, Will. The last time America men were on top in tennis... All you needed was like 13 or 14 majors to be considered the GOAT if you're Pete Sampras. (laughs) Now, you have to win at least 20 just to be considered part of the conversation. (laughs) So the world just caught up and passed us, and we just got to get up to speed. Sampras is a little bit like the, I don't know who held the home run record before Babe Ruth, but he's like that guy. (laughs) He's like, I have like like 200 homers. I'm the greatest. And then everyone shoves goes up. Those were the days. The guy that ate like 11 (laughs) hot dogs before before that guy showed up (laughs) to eat the 50. Uh, Yeah, someone, uh, I I get how it goes. I'm still kind of in my, uh, I'm all up in my feelings a little bit still after my Illini's lost. It's one thing to lose in a the NCAA tournament, it happens. It's hard to it's hard to deal with. But then when you lose and the opposing coach takes off his shirt to celebrate, and when that opposing <laughs> coach is Kelvin Sampson and he's ranting around uh, without a shirt, he looks good. I will hope to look as good as he does when I am his age, jumping around shirtless after he's beaten my beloved Illinois Fighting Illini in the tournament. What school is that it's again? Illinois, it's Houston. It's Houston. It's good for the Houston Cougars. <laughs> yeah, but like honestly, like right now, I can't, I'm, I'm so depressed by this. I can't look at highlights of the game. I can't talk to anyone from Texas. I can't even watch Apollo 13. Like just say oh, the word. I can't. Man. I can't even walk down Houston Street in Manhattan. I cannot <laughs> deal. Illinois has had two All-Americans in two consecutive years, one of the greatest runs in Illinois basketball history, and never once made it to the Sweet 16. I insist if the, for the tournament that was canceled because of COVID in 2020, I think they would have won that whole thing, and history cannot prove me otherwise. So uh, it's a sad day, but the good news is I got to see a shirtless Kelvin Sampson celebrate defeating my team. Don't worry, Will. The Big Ten is well represented. It all it is. There's this year. There's two. They're well represented. We're not even supposed to cheer for one. Hey, of them. listen. I have to say, good for Jawan Howard, by the way, with all the crap that he got. They're in the Sweet Sixteen. They're in the Sweet Sixteen. Nobody else is. Nobody else in the Sweet Sixteen. And you know what? Handling post game handshake lines just fine. In fact, had like one of the best moments of the tournament after they beat Tennessee. Yeah, that, that's the real Juwan that's, and that's I, I, I agree. And I think that I have always kind of felt that way about him, too. I think it was a bad moment. But, like, generally speaking, people do not hate Juwan Howard to any stretch of the imagination. No, so. no, of course not. No. And I'm sure if a man hadn't grabbed his arm, wouldn't let him go, and accosted him in the handshake line, fisticuffs would have never transpired that game either. To be fair, he may have been very physically intimidated by Greg Gard. Okay, well, time to move on, because my longtime friend Michelle Beter was here, and she's ready to talk about Deshaun Watson and the more dilemmas that tarnished athletes pose for their fans. I think Deshaun Watson figures he can be the final piece for a Browns team that has not won a division title since 1989, the longest drought in the NFL. 
Deshaun believes he can be the difference. The Browns believe he can be the difference. The Browns have gone through a litany of quarterbacks since they returned to the NFL. None of them have worked under the ownership of Jimmy Haslam. And because of that, he was willing to pay for an elite quarterback in the prime of his career, despite the fact that he could be suspended some games this year and give him that rich, huge contract. That was ESPN's Adam Schefter announcing the shocking trade of the controversial superstar quarterback Deshaun Watson from the Houston Texans to the Cleveland Browns last week. Watson was ruled out of every game in 2021 by the Texans for, quote, non-injury reasons after he was sued prior to the start of last season by 22 different women, all massage therapists, who accused him of sexual harassment and sexual assault. But after a grand jury cleared Watson of criminal charges related to the sexual misconduct allegations on March 11th, Houston traded him last Friday to Cleveland for five draft picks. And even though Watson will almost certainly be suspended by the NFL in 2022 and still faces the many civil cases brought against him, the Browns just signed him to a new, fully guaranteed five-year deal worth a record-shattering $230 million, the most guaranteed money in league history, $80 million more than Aaron Rodgers received when he finalized his contract extension just last week. On top of it all, Brown's ownership was willing to protect the bulk of Watson's earnings by paying him only $1 million next season. So when Watson inevitably gets suspended, he'll lose less than $60,000 a game. This is nothing new for the Browns, who also signed running back Kareem Hunt three months after a video surfaced of him shoving and kicking a woman, and defensive tackle Malik McDowell, who was charged with assaulting a police officer, so Watson is hardly the first Browns player to be accused of doing bad things. But he's also been called a serial predator by one of the plaintiffs, and, unlike Hunt and McDowell, is such a difference maker that he could well lead Cleveland to the Super Bowl for the first time in team history, which puts any Browns fan with a conscience suddenly facing a moral dilemma they probably didn't ask for. So, here to help us sort through the Watson situation and explain whether it's even possible to be an ethical sports fan anymore is our first guest of the day and friend of the show, my friend too, by the way, LZ, though not as close as you are. Sorry, didn't mean to harm I do have fewer shoes than she does. It is Michelle Beadle. Michelle Beadle, welcome back. Hi, guys. What's going on? This Deshaun Watson situation feels to me like a bit of a threshold for a lot of people. I'm curious your thoughts about this process about the NFL's handling of it and what just like a normal person who wants to just watch football can possibly do in this situation. (laughs) I mean, that is the $240 million question, (laughs) isn't it? You know, this is the exact, this was years ago and I I got a lot of heat for it for calling out owners and whatnot. And there's been, look, there's a variety of reasons why one could just pick out the NFL specifically and say, I'm done with you, whether it be the blackballing of Colin Kaepernick, the constant just dismissal of atrocious behavior by it's several players. And by the way, when I say that, I'm very well aware of the math. I know that most guys are decent human beings, but there have been a lot of bad cases, a lot of abuse towards women, a lot of accusations, animal abuse, whatnot. And we we tend to turn a blind eye. And at one point it was too much. This is one of those moments again when you you want to get back into something you want to love it and is just a punch in the face, not just to women, because really what the problem is here is that we've decided that these are female male topics. When in reality, if all of this was taken as seriously as it should be by both sides, We wouldn't be in this situation. We wouldn't have people clamoring and accountants and lawyers and owners trying to figure out the legalese on how to protect someone (laughs) who they know 
is going to have a punishment come down at some point because there is no other reason to do somersaults over yourselves in a contract to protect monies. And that is disgusting. But then again, you think, well, who are owners? Owners are rich people who have lawyers on retainer for life that they call cleanup people to go in and sweep everything under the rug that they may be doing or that their family may be doing. So this is a world in which morality and rules and laws don't exist. They don't follow the same codes that you and I have to. They get away with a lot more than we could even dream of. And this is gross. And not just the Cleveland Browns, but the fact that there was a a market, a feeding frenzy, so much so that this guy got more guaranteed money than anyone ever. So not only did he not get punished, he's been doubly rewarded. I mean, I don't, what is the lesson? Ladies, never report anything because no one will believe you. No one gives a damn. And the NFL above everyone certainly doesn't care. And I don't care how much pink merchandise you want to sell me. doesn't matter. You know, Michelle, it's, it's so interesting that you start off talking about how this conversation is always characterized as a women's issue or a women's conversation because we're so used to men just ignoring this dynamic as if we're not involved. Right. <laughs> right. Like someone said to me, what does it say to women? And I thought, what does it say to men? Like, why do you assume that all men are okay with this? Right. All men aren't okay with this either. Women and I certainly aren't okay with this. And at the same time, I also must acknowledge the fact that I haven't done anything to communicate in an effective way that I'm not okay with this. And the reason why I say that is because I was at the Super Bowl. I have not stopped watching the NFL. Right. Not during Kaepernick, not after Ray Rice, not after Ray Lewis. Like, I have not stopped watching the NFL. So it is almost disingenuous for me to be upset at what the Cleveland Browns have done because I've given permission for the Cleveland Browns and the NFL to do this consistently just by supporting and being right. a fan. And it's really conflicting because I love watching the games and I love being at the games and I love Winning a Super Bowl, finally. You know, this is the first damn time, Michelle, that a team I rooted for had actually won a Super Bowl. I know. You have, like, a different glow now. Your skin's, like, different. Something's you know what? I don't even use moisturizer anymore. I just, it's just... It's just victory. It's just, I literally woke up like this. Like, literally. But this is it, right? Yeah. The game is so enjoyable that we continually give permission for the NFL to do bad things. It's like a parent who has, like, a demonic child who keeps saying, but look at that smile. Exactly. Yeah. I, I agree. Like, I shouldn't feel dirty being a fan of something. Like, it's my free time. Yeah. Time is money, yada, yada. I should be excited about it. And then they do this to us where they they put us in this weird quagmire and I don't know how I'm supposed to react. And it makes me not want to watch. But yet mm -hmm. we all do. They just bragged about record numbers again. So, <laughs> And Elsa, you talked about the, the Super Bowl. I mean, like, for crying out loud, there was a time where the big scandal of the offseason was Joe Mixon. Like Joe Mixon was the big, right. huge NFL scandal and people were protesting that he would be drafted. And you know what happened? He just kept playing and people all just kind of moved on and then he was in the Super Bowl and everyone was cheering for him. If the Browns are looking for any potential idea of how this might be handled in the long term, they can look in their own backfield at Kareem Hunt. And how often do you see that brought up on a broadcast about Kareem Hunt? Or how often do you brought up in like a beat reporter's notes about Kareem Hunt? It it's should funny. be brought up every time. I know, but it's Because not. when it is brought up, it's 
always brought up as, well, you know, that incident. That incident. Yeah, the incident. The incident. He overcame <laughs> adversity. Right? right and right, it, right. that pisses me off more than anything. A, yeah. it makes me completely lose respect for whoever that announcer is in that particular moment. And B, what a garbage way to refer to someone if it was a loved one who was the other half mm. of the equation of the incidents that we speak of, then I don't think you'd be so nonchalant about an incident. Well, you got to move on. Yeah, you can move on. And he's playing and he's going to make a lot of money. But that doesn't mean that every time his name is mentioned, you don't throw in a little asterisk because that's the only way. It's gross how quickly we can just throw but, these horrible actions away as if ah, five minutes have gone by. Move on. Don't you have something else to worry about? No, we don't. But here's my question for both of you. What's the statute of limitations on this, right? Nothing. By death, because, I guess. <laughs> because, <laughs> don't say it too loudly. I'm bringing that up is because we don't do that across many different platforms, right? Like We should. We don't bring up the domestic <laughs> violence situation between Rihanna and Chris Brown every single time Chris Brown songs I on the do. radio. I Every do. single time the song is on the radio. I always go, man, I love this song. Too bad he's a garbage person. Every single time. And look, maybe I'm the unhealthy one here. Maybe you are supposed to you be You are one. in the shoe closet right now. <laughs> it's a great point. Here I am in a bunker of shoes. Like, totally, totally Maybe normal. I'm unhealthy. <laughs> but I, I, you know me, LZ. Like, I just, I can't, I can't forget certain things. Like there are right. 7 billion people walking on the planet. Most of us will live our lives without ever being or doing or being accused of some pretty awful things. So the ones that have, that also have gone on to become rich and famous, I don't see what the big deal is to just remind you, hey, yeah, killing it, won a Grammy, awesome. Also, beat the crap out of Rihanna. <laughs> it was his bad behavior. Who are we yeah. protecting by not mentioning it? Him? Right. The person that we're talking, I don't care. Don't be a garbage person. We don't have to remind the world of it. It's just that easy. And this guy, Sean Watt, if he goes on to win, which, by the way, karma, please be real, he won't. But if he did, <laughs> then all of this just is gone. Like, oh, oh, well. And 22, at least, that we know of, women are just sitting back going, why did I even bother? Who put their names on the lawsuit, by the way. And didn't take money. Yes. Like, they were like, no, nah, we're good. We're yeah. going to, we want this to go forward. Right. Right. What is William doing, Will? Yeah, my son is a Browns fan. His son yes. is a Cleveland Browns fan. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like by choice? How? What? I know. How? It's so weird. He just like, a I team? know. I've already thought about, like, what? you know, reporting him to like child protection or something Seriously. like that. Like, it's, it's, it's funny, actually, because the main reason he became a Browns fan is because I live in Athens, Georgia. My okay. son's school is right across the street from the Georgia practice facility. Nick Chubb literally opened the door for his class and sat in class with them and took questions. Nick Chubb is like beloved and like an exemplary guy in every way you could possibly hope for. And so to me, I was like, oh, good. Well, that's safe. <laughs> like, Nick Chubb, like that's as best I could do, right? Is that like, okay, no, Nick Chubb is an man. awesome dude. But I think that speaks to the larger issue is on one hand, yes, it is obviously much harder that my son's favorite team is not only going to bring this guy in the quarterback, but is in fact moved to heaven and earth to protect him in every possible way. On the other hand, while I think this is awful for the Haslam's and the Browns owners to do this, I'm not particularly sold that 29 or 31 other owners would not do the exact same thing. I'm not going to say, oh no, you can't root for the Browns anymore because like, fine, go root for the Bengals. Oh, Joe Mixon. You can root for the Rams. We're perfect. I've got, I'm sorry. See, I you just you just jinxed seriously. It, the day just seriously. started. Yeah. Also, <laughs> like, what's wrong I, with I have you? some thoughts about your owner, by the way. Um, <laughs> 
but uh, that was the reason why I threw it out there, just so you can. But anyway, the point is, there's no there's no place to turn, right? There's no place to actually yeah. turn. And so, on one hand, that is awful. On the other hand, and I think all sports fans kind of have to deal with a little bit is the okay, what exactly am I rooting for? When I root for the Cardinals, at a certain level, I'm not really rooting for Yadier Molina. I'm not rooting for Bill DeWitt, the owner of the Cardinals. I am rooting for my experience in this world and my connection with the Cardinals. What they mean to me, what they mean to my family, the memories I attach to them, the things that I care about. That's essentially what I'm cheering for. That's kind of the way I've tried to paint it for myself. So for one example, if the Cardinals were to get someone horrible on their team, which I'm sure they probably already do. Listen, I have Cubs fan friends when Daniel Murphy was traded to them a couple years ago who famously had some very homophobic comments and they're like, I don't think I can move for the Cubs anymore. But they did because the Cubs mean something to them and they don't want to let that go. And I think that bargain that we all have to make with ourselves, not just with players and not just the bad things they do, but with the whole system of sports and all the ugly things that go into it, it's super, super hard. I saw Joe Mixon in the Super Bowl. Nobody said shit. So right. at a certain level, while I am disgusted and particularly disgusted by what the Browns did, it's hard to be like, okay, but then there's this and there's going to be another thing in six months. And there's going to be another right. thing in six months and we'll have moved on to this and moved on to something else. I'm saddened by my own despair. I'm doing the best I can. I think we're all doing the best we can. But it's hard not to become hardened and cynical when you see how little punishment there is and how quickly, frankly, fans tend to move on. And not just that, but how quickly fans who, by the way, had they found themselves in the exact same situation as Deshaun Watson would be burned at the stake. Oh, yeah. You know, their jobs would have gotten rid of them a long time Mm. ago before all this. But these are the same sycophantic fans who will defend a man they will never meet, who doesn't give a damn about them, doesn't know they exist. And they will to the ends. They will insult everyone. They will put women down. They will say you're in to defend a man they don't have any clue about. That's where sports loses me. That's where it just delves into such a grimy, dirty. I see these owners, they have this liquid that we all thirst for. They can burn down villages, pillage the earth, but we need the liquid. And they know that. (laughs) They can do whatever they want. They know that. They have us all by the whatever's. (laughs) And it's it's frustrating. And look, I get it. The alternative is, I guess, you just don't watch sports anymore. But then what? Kevin Spacey. I can't watch his movies. I can't. It goes on and on and on. We're on a treadmill of crap. And it's unfortunate because I'm with you on this, Will. Like, I love loving sports. I love being a fan of games. And then you put me in this weird mental gymnastics where I have to be like, ah, okay. I have to pretend like that didn't happen. No. I just will root that the Cleveland Browns never ever sniff, not even just a win, even leading a game for five. I don't know. <laughs> nothing. Okay. Nothing. That's going to be hard. May to your ex- city burn. <laughs> that's going to be hard to explain <laughs> to my son. I will confess. I, well, I know. Be- wait, wait, you know wait. Give him my number. I'm going to talk about <laughs> it. We joke, but like, honestly, when I'm watching a Browns game with my son, I'm probably not going to yell at him when the Browns score. <laughs> I probably not go into it. It's going to be very and, awkward. Well, you know what? The good news is, hopefully, Deshaun may not play this entire upcoming season. Right. So there, there you go. And, and by the way, and I think this is an important slash responsible thing to do. These are still allegations. Sure. Right? A so lot of them. There still signed. is a you know process that right. needs to be executed before we can definitively say he's been guilty of these But can crimes. I say that, though? Like, and I know we have to do all that because it's America, yada, yada, home of the whatever. <laughs> but point is, yeah, and that is that is a big explanation that a lot of mouth breathers will tell you. But remember, we're talking about owners 
who've done some pretty right. no, shady no, things. I, I, they were guilty. They just got out of it. And the thing that I find really fascinating is that, you know, these last two years in particular, we've really been having serious conversations about our criminal justice system and whether or not it is fair. Right. And I would argue that a lot of voices who are upset at the way that the system seems to be, or at least measured to be, more harmful to people of color than you are white people, the fact that you're very comfortable with Deshaun being cleared with the backdrop of us questioning everything about the criminal justice system, especially when it pertains to rich people, is a little perplexing for me. Where's the critical thinking that you had just a couple of weeks ago when it was about are rich people able to use their wealth in order to get through things that normal people who aren't as rich won't be able to? Well, yes, of course. Sure. So why is this different? <laughs> Not. Why are you so comfortable saying, oh, well, he was clear, so he must be innocent. But we just spent two years talking about how people are able to get around or unfairly treated by a, cr- a criminal yep, justice system. It's very convenient. I'm not on a jury, but I am a human being that gets to draw my own judgments from stuff. And I can look at 22 people that put their name on something and say, you know what? Right. I believe them more than I believe right. you. Look, if I'm accused, 22 different people accuse me. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I promise you. I might have not done all 22. I certainly did a lot. Yeah. That's a fact. Right. And, and uh, Why else? There's this like level of, well, if he hasn't actually been convicted, then we. And, and, yeah, and, and it's weird because like this is what we do as human beings. We make our decisions based off what we see in front of us. And, if, and hopefully good faith. <laughs> 22 people, names on. Again, their names are on this lawsuit. Right. Certainly seeing the names right. on there is not nothing. <laughs> it's not nothing. And particularly <laughs> when well, you see- There's gold not, diggers. You and know when that. You see, They're just gold diggers. It's funny you say that because when you see what the lawyers, what Rusty Harden and the lawyers for Watson are doing, that's exactly what they're saying. They're saying that they're gold diggers. They're saying that they want women are just gold diggers. We're here to get pregnant and steal your money. That's all we want. That's all we've ever wanted. Apparently, if you ask lawyers, defense attorneys and what have you. And it's disgusting. These same lawyers are married. They have mothers. They have daughters. They have women in their lives. They actually probably respect and love. Although I'd be honest with you, if my friend's Rusty Harden, I don't think he respects and loves women. Sorry. When it comes down to this, they get painted in a picture. We have brainwashed fans into starting to see them the same way. And that Mm -hmm. is how a guy like Deshaun Watson will not only get to live his dream and make a bazillion dollars out of it, he will be cheered and adored. And it'll be as if none of this ever happened. Do you view... The way that the NFL in general and Cleveland Browns specifically has have handled the Deshaun Watson situation. How do you view that in comparison to what the Dodgers and Major League Baseball has done with Trevor Bauer, which aren't exactly the same allegations, but at the end of the day, we're discussing allegations about violence against women. Right. Like they just said, hey, stay away until we we figure some stuff out. Right. Like that was the whole the point, I think. Again, I think the NFL has a a freedom because of the power that it has. Yeah, no offense to baseball, but it doesn't even sniff the kind of power and money and and pull that the NFL has. The fact that the the Browns are just going to release a statement saying, yep, we did it. We did all of this investigation. Basically, they asked Deshaun, did you do this? No? Cool. Here's $240 million. Because they didn't talk to lawyers. Who did they investigate? (laughs) They didn't ask the women anything. They didn't ask the women's lawyer anything. Like. What investigation? You literally just asked Deshaun and maybe a a couple of his friends. What is that the investigation? So it's at at least don't don't lie to us. 
If you want to be transparent and tell us what, great, I'm all here. I'm all ears for your investigation. But to put out a statement and act like we, yeah, we did our due diligence. And again, I'm with Will on this. I'm not just grossed out by the Browns. There was a feeding frenzy. There's right. a reason he got that much money because a bunch of people wanted him. And what are we doing? Come on. I get it. He's talented. But my God, can we have some line? Just one line. Maybe make it and be strong and hold it. You know what's so interesting, too? You talk about that one line. Remember, Deshaun was sitting out, not because of the allegations initially, yeah. but because the organization was so racist. <laughs> it's such a hot mess. It's such a hot it's mess. Such, it's so gross. Like, it's all dirty and gross. And by the way, what I'm really happy about is that Calvin Ridley will get to sit out an entire year for gambling $1,500. Are we insane? He's, Are we insane? He is. He is this out isn't reality. An entire year right. for $1,500. Yeah. Tom Brady, hate him or love him. Four games for a ball. Like, what are we doing? Like, this, it does not of it make sense to me. It but none of it makes sense. We'll be there on the couch on Sundays. Well, Can't wait. Got to defend that championship, girl. <laughs> Go Rams! It's such a mess. I wish somebody with a backbone would just walk in and be like, look, this is going to make a lot of people angry, but we can't have this for the league. The integrity that they so highly covet, well, it's a joke. It is a complete joke to most of us who know what integrity actually means. So, backbone man, walk in, do something about this. But until then, quid pro quo over and over and over again. Love it. Love it. Well, we look forward to having you back on in a month or two when there's another one of these. <laughs> I know. Yeah. No, well, no, you know no, what? no, no, no. We cannot make Michelle Beadle our domestic violence in the NFL correspondent. No, I just mean anything. Norma, right. like dog, dog, <laughs> no, dog fighting, uh, no hiring oh. black coaches. That's the thing. The NFL always has something. That's what they would argue. They would argue we are so big. We are so massive that, like, I'm sorry, I thought you were just mad about not hiring black coaches. Now you're mad at us about this. Yeah. Now you're going to be <laughs> mad much. at us about something else. Too much. And, like, I, that would be their argument is that, like, there's well, always something. And there's always something. Why would anyone change their behavior? There's no punishment. And by the way, the other players in the league, I, I always think about this when it comes down to it. If we all work for the same company and there's just one guy that's just a bad, bad dude. At some point, don't we govern ourselves? Don't we all just come together and say, man, we can't have this guy out there as the face of this thing. Like, this is a bad look for all of us. This is garbage. We don't, um, we don't want this. Were you around between 2016 <laughs> and 2020? Or... You, guys, you all used to work for ESPN, hey. right? <laughs> yeah, and I tried to get that guy kicked out. Nobody would follow me. <laughs> so, like, I don't know what to tell you. But it just, for me, I would feel as another player, as a good Man, as a as a person that is doing what they're supposed to do in life, I and these stories happen. I, like enough. I don't want this as part of my league. I'm a part of this league too, and we're all getting looked at as if we're bad people. And I would want somebody to stop that, but that's not happening either. So, <laughs> it is awesome. get your pink T-shirt and shut up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Can I get my pink bedazzled hat, please? Yay, women! <laughs> so I, I, I was by understanding that, that was supposed to fix that. Is that it didn't, it didn't, it didn't. I know it does. Just like end racism, as long as you write it in an end zone, it's ended. We've ended. Oh, it was racism. so yeah. over when I was in that end zone. I can't believe you ended that thing, man. That was awesome for you. You know, but as soon as I left the end zone, would you believe racism was back? Yeah, it, exactly. It was crazy. Yeah. Exactly. And it turns out it was on us. It was on us the whole time. The whole time. <laughs> it oh, was on us. All of us. It was on all it's of all us. about the journey, the friends we made along the way. All right, Beats. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your jokes. And thank you so much for giving us the shoes in the background. I'll be talking about this for many, many seasons going forward. And I guess go Browns. 
Go. Ugh. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks again to Michelle Beadle. But, Will, there's no time to waste because Lindsey Jones, the great NFL writer for The Athletic, is here. Lindsay just wrote a powerful piece about Deshaun Watson that was published on Friday, so we want to get her insights on the Browns' decision to acquire him and what it means for the franchise and the league going forward. Thank you, Lindsay Jones. We've been to Russia together, so <laughs> Lindsay and I will always, always be bonded. Thank you for coming on and talking with us, Lindsay. Thank you so much for having me. Lindsay, you survived Russia with Will for how long? <laughs> Three weeks, the 2014 yeah. Sochi Olympics. Are you still in recovery now or is it something in your past? Yeah. We we survived it. Yeah. That was incredible bonding time. And then it's just kind of wild now to think of you know what's happening in Russia yeah. to to think back that we were there just a few years ago. All I remember there is losing like 10 pounds because there was nothing to eat. That's the main thing I remember from my time from Sochi. So Lindsay, we we want to talk a, a lot, obviously, about the Deshaun Watson situation. The Browns obviously they quote unquote won this, so they're the ones that are getting all the heat. But it was really shocking to see that basically half the NFL, just basically any team that didn't already have a court quarterback set up was eager to be a part of this. Yeah, I mean, this was a situation that Deshaun Watson and his agent, uh, David Mugoletta, and his legal team controlled. Um, it was not the reverse. Mm-hmm. So these teams that flew to Houston to meet with Deshaun Watson and his crew last week, it was less of a fact-finding mission on their side mm-hmm. than it was a recruiting pitch. I mean, this was like a college-style recruiting home visit, what we can offer you, basically short of, like, let's put you in the jersey and, you know, make you a social media posting. I mean, this was very much, let's talk about contract, let's talk about roster, let's talk about football, less so than convince us that you're a decent person who's not going to embarrass this franchise. I think a lot of these teams probably you know, heard what they wanted to hear. The The investigative process was speaking to Deshaun Watson directly, speaking to people around Watson, including his legal team and his agent, and, you know, potentially some people close to him uh, to find out what kind of guy is this. It did not involve um, speaking with any of the 22 women who have filed complaints against him. You know, I made calls about this last week trying to find out, well, what is this homework process like? What is this due diligence that we're going to hear about? You know, and I did hear that teams were trying to get information from Houston police. What did they uncover in their investigation? Um, They wanted to find out what was being said in the depositions. Although through the end of, I guess, just over a week ago, Deshaun Watson was pleading the fifth in those depositions. (laughs) So, you know, they could potentially get the witness statements or the, the depositions from the accusers and from these women, but not from Deshaun Watson himself. That's kind of where this is at, right? I mean, this is this was a thing about money. It was about roster construction. It was about the chance to win. And it was Deshaun Watson, a guy who has been still facing 22 civil cases at this point and, you know, credible accusations. And while he's not facing um, jail time at this point, he's not going to go to trial. There's going to be no criminal charges coming. These are still very concerning and serious allegations. A guy who's facing all of that really getting to not only dictate his NFL future, land himself a contract that has the most guaranteed money for an NFL player ever. (laughs) He's not going to be the highest paid quarterback by average salary. He's going to be close, but he's receiving more guaranteed money than Aaron Rodgers, more than Patrick Mahomes, more than Matthew Stafford, you know, just won a Super Bowl, just signed a new deal. He's getting more guaranteed money than any of those guys. When you say those words, how does that make you feel? Yeah, it's it's made me feel real icky all along, right? I mean, and that was kind of the the gist of the column that I wrote immediately after the trade the other day. I said, "How does this make you feel? 
does this make you feel okay? Or does this make you your stomach turn? I mean, I think I sent text messages around, you know, speaking with colleagues and, you know, people around the league the other day that it just like, it kind of made me, it just, it really made my stomach turn because it's really hard to read the words of those that are in those complaints, all 22 of them, and not feel some kind of way, right? And and it's just really hard to reconcile the contract and the media coverage of everything that happened last week and certainly the signing with what is out there, right? And, you know, look, none of us can say 100%, right, what exactly happened in those private rooms. I find it very hard to believe that nearly two dozen women are lying about what they've said here. And I wrote this on Friday, and um, I, it's something that I kind of still keep coming back to is that, at, you know, at best, right, this is a guy who is regularly, routinely soliciting women on Instagram, on social media to fly them in to perform massages, licensed massage therapists, but he is soliciting dozens of women to fly them in. And in many of those cases, he makes those women feel very uncomfortable. He turns those into sexual situations. Um, his defense, right, is not that these con- that these massages never happened. It's that these were consensual sexual encounters. So at best, this is a guy who is soliciting dozens of women on social media to fly them in to perform massages that turn sexual. That is concerning behavior, right? <laughs> I, I don't think even at best, right. even if you buy Deshaun Watson's line here that there was nothing inappropriate or nothing, I guess, violent or criminal in nature that happened in these encounters, that still it, it kind of creeps me out, right? At worst, if you believe every word that is in those complaints by these dozens of women, it's far more concerning than that. And the Browns went ahead and gave him $230 million guaranteed. Three other teams were ready to do something very similar. And, well, as you mentioned, you know, a number of other teams at least called to find out what it would take to sign him. But you, but you, you know why, right? Yeah. I mean, we all know oh, yeah. why. It's because he's an outstanding football yeah. player. If he was you know, mediocre, obviously this is an entirely different conversation. So I guess my question to you, Lindsay, and and I guess you as well, Will, how much of this conversation are you going to remember if Deshaun Watson is able to make the Cleveland Browns matter? Yeah, I mean, I know personally, I don't think I'll forget it. I know there's <laughs> a lot of people in the the general NFL media group, the you know, NFL universes lar- at large who will forget it. We know exactly what will happen, right? Ben Roethlisberger just retired from the NFL. What happened his last couple games? He was lauded. It was like Sports Center specials. It was a Monday night football game, I believe. It was every sort of like pomp and circumstance about this guy's career. Was there a single message mention on those broadcasts about the six-game suspension? Or I guess it was six reduced to four on appeal that he served, what was that, 2008, 2010? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that he served that suspension and very credible sexual assault allegations against him. No criminal charges, but he was suspended by Roger Goodell. So we know it. We've seen this over and over and over again, right, of guys who have faced criminal allegations, um, complaints about sexual assault or sexual misconduct. And if if you come back and you play and you play well, and if you're a great quarterback, ultimately, it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, heck, we saw this at the Super Bowl, right? I mean, remember Joe Mixon when he came into the league? Sure. This was the big story of that draft. 
Kareem Hunt. Why is he on the Browns in the first place? The Browns clearly have kind of shown where they are on this. But it's worth noting that I didn't see any of those stories brought up at the Super Bowl about either one of those players. <laughs> no, it, it, it largely doesn't. It's certainly during yeah. the games. And, yeah, and right, right. this is something that we kind of always have to grapple with. Um, I know my editors and I and kind of my entire, you know, our, our staff as a whole had discussions about this when it came to Tyreek Hill at the Super Bowl two years ago, the first time that the Chiefs were there. And that was coming off the season where he had spent the entire offseason away from the Chiefs while he was under investigation for child abuse allegations. Ultimately, he was cleared. There were no charges ever brought there. But if you listen to the words of the investigators and the prosecutors there, still some concerning stuff there. But so he was away from the team that entire offseason, was able to come back and play. And we kind of had to have the conversations of how do we talk about this? How do we write about this? What if he's Super Brum VP? How do you handle this? Because at that point, it is part of his story. Is it going to be a part of Deshaun Watson's story um, week two when they're playing the Bengals and he throws for 350 yards and two touchdowns and two interceptions? Do we have to talk about it every week? Maybe. I don't know. But anytime there's any sort of feature about him, any story about his offseason, uh, his – I don't know. I'm I'm just bracing myself for the inevitable yeah. stories about all this adversity that he's overcoming overcome. adversity. Yes, overcoming adversity. Not only did he overcome adversity, which is my favorite way that they characterize these situations, but then it quickly becomes a hero. Sure. Yeah. Sort of characterization, too. Like, he overcame adversity, and because he now won, he's now a protagonist in this story without ever fully being an antagonist. Yeah. If, if oh, will. absolutely. It will happen. It is coming. That line of questioning. I mean, it might come the first time he has a press conference in Cleveland, which has not formally been scheduled yet. Usually when you trade for a <laughs> high-profile quarterback, True. there's a press conference immediately. I live in Denver. Russell Wilson had, I mean, they basically like rolled out a red carpet. I mean, there was, it was like basically Don't everything. An orange, except, <laughs> an orange carpet. Oh yeah. Let's ride. Right. It was very produced. All it was missing really was like a marching band. I mean, it was quite a to-do. There's none of that happening in Cleveland, which says a lot about, I think the Browns know what the reaction is going to be. But it very much could happen in that first press conference where somebody will ask a question of like, how much does it mean to you to be able to prove yourself yeah. or that you've been able to overcome this and get your career? You know, it's coming. We just have yeah, to prepare yeah. ourselves for it. You know, I think most of us or most of us in this business are or, you know, a lot of our colleagues, I think, are just ill-equipped to handle this and to have those those type of discussions and I hope in newsrooms around the country that are, you know, sports newsrooms are having those discussions about how do we deal with this moving forward. Just because he signed with a new team, this this stuff is certainly not over. It's going to be challenging to think about and cover and talk about for months to come. I don't want to dominate the conversation, Will, but I just have one more Please little go. question because it's an important aspect of the way that we talk about not just this situation with Deshaun Watson, but I just think the conversation of sports figures behaving badly and how we cover them in general. Because the Houston Texans organization was pretty much a really racist organization <laughs> based upon, you know, what's been reported in terms of how they handled the team president slash GM hiring, what we know, what the previous owner before he passed away had to say about protesting black players. Like a lot of racism has come out of that franchise. So I guess my question to both of you is, if we're not going to let go of Deshaun Watson and these allegations, why are we letting go of the racism 
that's been around the organization as well as we talk about Deshaun Watson. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely part of this. And I spoke with our Texans beat writer, Aaron Reese, last week um, as we kind of prepared for this news to happen about how did they get to this point, right? (laughs) When did this relationship between Deshaun Watson and the Texans kind of where was it clear that it was heading for divorce? And there were a couple pivotal moments in that. One was the DeAndre Hopkins trade. I mean, that was a huge, a huge moment in terms of like the direction of that franchise and how much he was clued in. But I also think there was, as you said, LZ, a lot of distrust and disrespect that was coming from the front office and certainly from ownership. LZ, what you were referring to was the comment that the previous owner, the, the late owner, Bob McNair, made kind of during the height of the player protests. He said kind of in a closed door owners meeting that they couldn't let the inmates run the asylum. Mm-hmm. And that statement, obviously, he argued that it was kind of taken out of context and he wasn't referring directly to the players. But that's not how players in the locker room felt about it. There was a lot of distrust brewing in that organization for a long time. And then when DeAndre Hopkins was traded, Jack Easterby kind of won the power struggle between Bill O'Brien and the front office. Deshaun Watson was out. He said, I will not be playing for this organization anymore. And when the 2021 offseason started, the Deshaun Watson trade speculation was the biggest storyline in early March of 2021. These allegations, the first civil complaint was filed in mid-March. I believe it was March 16th, which kind of changed the entire tenor of this. But Deshaun Watson didn't play for the Texans last year because of his trade demands and because he didn't want to play for the Texans and the McNair family. It wasn't because they sat him because of the, the criminal investigation. There's no sort of like time served right now. They said, fine, we will pay you to not be around this team right now. You don't want to play for us. It's just easier to just kind of push you off to the side. And so that made last season kind of really, it was just complicated, right? I mean, the NFL didn't have to put them on any sort of exempt list. They didn't have to put them on a paid suspension. They didn't have to rush their investigation into him because the Texans were willing (laughs) to pay him millions and millions and millions of dollars to not play last year. I was really interested to see what was going to happen had he gotten traded at midseason because the Dolphins would not have done that. The Dolphins, (laughs) if they had traded for him, they would have played him immediately and would Roger Goodell and the NFL let that happen? Um, I'm not sure the answer to that, but I am fairly confident that the NFL is not going to rush this. They're not going to make any sort of decision right now. He's not going on any sort of suspended list immediately. At some point, it could happen. It it is certainly a realistic possibility. But it's been a really kind of long, layered, complicated Mm -hmm. journey for Deshaun Watson and the Texans to get to this point. I have to say, from the NFL itself and from the teams, from the players, I haven't really seen much. I mean, would Joe Mixon had to go through this? I'm very sorry. I've made my big mistakes. I've done all of this. Kareem Hunt, Tyreek Hill. There was clearly some public contrition that they were meant to be on the defensive. This seems the opposite of that. The NFL, whether it's institutionally or the teams or even some of the players, seem to kind of shrug their shoulders and be like, yeah, we've just seen this happen so many times before. What, what can we do about it now? Yeah, I mean, the the overall reaction from active players around the league on Friday, as soon as the trade went down, was, oh, my God, look at how much money he got. I yeah. mean, it was very much like victory lap for his agents, for how much guaranteed money he got, how they turned this entire situation and his trade demands in the year that he didn't play into a record-setting quarterback contract. I mean, it was like a party for that. And it's just been so much discussion about like, what does this contract mean? And is it going to reset the market? And now will more players get fully guaranteed deals? Um, There hasn't been a ton of kind of critical looking at 
the structure of the contract, the way that the first year of the contract is just over a million dollars. So if he does get suspended, it really won't cost him that much money. Mm. There hasn't been a ton of that in the general discourse. Peter King um, Mm -hmm. did a really good look at the contract. He was one of the few men that I saw that actually kind of went out there and said, this feels wrong. Um, this was a bad move for the, the Browns shouldn't have done this. This is a bad look for the NFL. Nancy Armour, a former colleague of mine at USA Today, she wrote a column. I wrote a column. Jenny Brent is from Sports Illustrated and now the New York Times. She's done a ton of reporting on this. There's a lot of women who have been writing in this space and speaking out in this space. Sarah Spain from ESPN had a really good kind of monologue on, I think it was on, it was on one of their shows this week. There haven't been a lot of men who have been getting into that space. So I actually texted Peter and I said, like, thank you for, for doing that. It doesn't, so it doesn't always have to be just the women who are kind of coming out and being the ones to, to write about athletes who are accused of sexual violence and those sorts of things. But you're right. Well, we haven't seen a lot of that discourse. Mostly it's just been, wow, look at that contract and what's that going to mean for the rest of us? I certainly have had conversations with NFL players about this situation and they keep going back to the basic sort of framework, which is consent. And that if a professional athlete who has access to the best trainers and nutritionists in the universe hits you up on Instagram asking for a massage, it's not because they you, your expertise is going to supersede anything that they already have access to. And that people know that there is this hint of sexual tension, if you will, when you slide into someone's DMs under those circumstances and they kind of roll their eyes at it. And while I certainly see that perspective, for sure, my thing is, is that even if, you know, the therapist decides to go on this plane and massage this quarterback, that still doesn't give permission to have the power shift that they're accusing him of transpire. But that's a real nuanced conversation. And we three work in an industry that just doesn't do nuance. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think you're exactly right. And when you talk about, you know, okay, what, what happened in these situations, the power imbalance is a huge, a huge part of that. Right. I mean, it's, it's a massive power imbalance. And then when you talk about the idea of like, oh, he's been cleared, he's been criminally cleared. Well, how do you prove these sorts of things, right? There's no rape kits. There's no DNA evidence. There's no video or probably even photographic evidence. You may have text messages or Instagram DMs that are arranging these sorts of meetings or messages that may have been exchanged after saying, you made me feel uncomfortable. Is that something that it rises to the criminal level? Apparently not, according to the grand jury right. in Houston, who right. said we're being, not going being to... Being a creep is not a crime. Yeah, exactly. Being a creep is not a crime. I think that's a really, really good way to put it. And that's where I kind of just keep coming back to, like, at a minimum, he's a creep, right? <laughs> he's he's a guy who gets off on massage appointments and brings in dozens and dozens of women. And this is kind of the way he behaves. That should have been enough, I think, for a lot of these teams to say, ah, you know, this this is abnormal, right? I mean... Most guys, most players, when they're talking about body treatment, they have a really small group of people that they hire that they trust to do their treatments and their massages and their PT and their acupuncture and all those sorts of things. So this is that normal behavior. Most NFL players are not 
doing this, right? <laughs> right? And I think that's what a lot of guys will tell you is that that that, that is unusual. I also think a lot of NFL players kind of they don't really care what their what their teammates do. Yeah. They just can he help us win? Is he a good quarterback? Yes. And if yes. it's not <laughs> Yeah, and if it's not, there's so much nuance involved in all of this. Is it a crime of violence? Crime of violence, I can use like air quotes around that. That's a phrase that's in the NFL's personal conduct policy when it comes to things that are violations and what rises to a level of a six-game suspension versus a two-game suspension and all these sorts of things. Are these things considered crimes of violence? I'm not sure if I know the answer to that. And I think even people who work in law enforcement and the legal side Mm -hmm. of this, I think even the legal justice system has a really hard time answering a lot of those questions. I mean, you're like, you know, one of the best NFL reporters I know, like, you know, this stuff so well, this feels to me like not a change, but like the collective shrug of this has been surprising. I would put it. There's no criminal stuff. So if there's no criminal stuff, that means he can be on the field because he's not in jail. And that is enough for us, for him to be able to play. And correct me, you've covered this closer and longer than I have. The collective moral reckoning on this feels new to me. Yeah. I mean, I think to me, like it it kind of puts us back in the situation that we were at, like almost in 2014, when the Ray Rice scandal first happened and first like forced the NFL to have this reckoning about the way it deals with crimes against women, whether that's domestic violence, sexual assault, sexual abuse, those sorts of things. And it just is a reminder that no matter how much the NFL says that they care about this or the work that they've done to craft their personal conduct policies and have education programs and talk about how much you know they care about women and try to cater to their female fan base, they have no idea what they're doing. And forever, basically until 2014, the NFL completely deferred to law enforcement. If a player is accused of something, we're going to let the legal system handle it. We're going to stay out of their investigations. We'll defer to whatever their investigation finds. And if a guy is convicted, great, we'll suspend him. They shifted kind of one way. They pivoted really hard, kind of the other side, and saying we're not going to rely on the legal justice system because the legal justice system is largely inequipped to um, (laughs) adjudicate crimes against women, right? I mean, these, these cases where it's two accounts without a lot of evidence and stuff. And what we've seen largely over the last, I guess, we're eight years really since this new personal conduct policy, I guess I shouldn't even call it new at this point, is that if there is video evidence of some sort, whether that's the Ray Rice video in the elevator, whether it's the Kareem Hunt video of kind of that altercation in a hotel room, if there is some sort of video evidence, the NFL will come down very, very hard on you because there is a ton of backlash when there is some sort of photographic or video evidence. Absent of that, we haven't seen a ton of a ton of change because they don't really know how to deal with the nuance. They don't have subpoena power. So it's just it's really hard. It's really complicated. And the NFL is no better, I think, now at handling this than they were eight years ago. Well, uh, you're starting to make me think that I also cannot trust their messaging on their helmets and their goalposts. Uh, now that you're, now that you're bringing me well, that is a whole different podcast. <laughs> well, and domestic violence against women is just too long to write in it's the end long, zone. Yeah. It's too and, long, yeah. And racism should cover everything, right? Yeah, if we exactly. put it in the end zones, it's going to be fine. Speaking, right. Yeah. Uh, Lindsay, thank you for your time. Thank you for all of your work covering the NFL for, uh, for years now. And I don't know, try to hang in there covering and talking to these people. <laughs> yeah, it's day. a lot. Well, we're headed 
to the NFL owners meetings next oh, well, week. Well, well, where that'll be, that'll be inclusive and positive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's so obviously this will be a big topic. Mm. The Dan Snyder Washington mm. lawsuits, congressional hearings, all of that stuff. There's the Brian Flores lawsuits and the institutionalized racism in the NFL's hiring practices. And um, yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Plus, Jerry American Jones thing. is my father, too. Jerry, <laughs> there's a whole lot of Cowboys. Uh, yeah. Um, the, the, the peeping incident. Yes. Yes. And yes. payments there. Yeah. Um, there is a lot going there's on. A lot. I mean, <laughs> overhauling <laughs> overtime is like 25th. On the most interesting things on the agenda next I week. I think we have officially confirmed that uh, the NFL is indeed finally become America's pastime. I don't think there's any question about that at this point. Lindsay, thank you for your time. Keep up the great work and be safe. Thanks, Lindsay. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks again to Lindsay Jones for joining us. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to switch gears and talk about something that's a lot more fun than Deshaun Watson. The closest scoring race in NBA history. Premiering Wednesday, March 30th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time on twitch.tv slash the recount. Again, twitch.tv slash the recount. It's Chatterbrain, colon, the news game show. Chatterbrain, colon, the news game show will test three contestants on their knowledge of current events and other trivia. One winning contestant will take on the wisdom of crowds, the Twitch chat room, in the final round. Host Slade Somer. The Recount's editor-in-chief picks topics from the Recount's treasure trove of stories and insights to create this first-of-its-kind news game show. So get yourself to reading. Everyone can play along in the Twitch chat for fun. I'll be playing along myself. But come round three, you, chatgoers, will go head-to-head to beat the last standing contestant. You'll laugh, you'll cheer, you'll catch up on the news. Doesn't matter if you get a question wrong, because you'll learn something. So tune in to Chatterbrain on Wednesday, March 30th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time to flaunt your news knowledge. Find us on Twitch at twitch.tv slash the recount. Again, twitch.tv slash the recount. It's Chatterbrain colon the news game show. All right, Will, we're back. And Braun now brings it across the timeline. Johnson. Avery Bradley, again, trying to solve the nobody, zone. Nobody diving, though. Everybody's standing shoot. around the perimeter. Diving LeBron, and yeah. there it is. There it is. The kid from Akron, LeBron James, has come into the nation's capital and has passed the mailman, Carl Malone, and is now number two all-time in scoring in the history of the NBA. That was the sound of LeBron James making an uncontested layup, perhaps two of the easiest points of his career, on Saturday night against the Washington Wizards to pass Carl Malone, speaking of problematic sports figures, and take over second place on the all-time NBA scoring list. But LeBron, of course, is after even more records. He's locked in right now in the tightest race for the scoring title in NBA history. As of Tuesday afternoon, when we're taping this show, James is averaging 30.0 points per game, while Joel Embiid and Giannis have each scored exactly 29.8 points per game. The minuscule separation between these three top scorers would break the record for the closest three-man scoring chase ever, which happened in 1985-86 when Dominique Wilkins, Adrian Dantley, and Alex English finished the season separated by only 0.5 points per game. The storylines here are both intriguing and even legacy-defining. 
If Embiid wins, he'll be the first center to hold the scoring title since Shaquille O'Neal more than 20 years ago. If Giannis wins, he'll be the only player besides Michael Jordan to be named league MVP, finals MVP, defensive player of the year, and NBA scoring champion. And if LeBron wins at age 37, he'll be the oldest to ever do it and the first player to win scoring titles at least 14 years apart. All right, LZ, there are about 10 games left in the season. It went by so fast. We were so young once. (laughs) Who do you think is going to be the scoring champion and why do you think so? I think it's going to be LeBron James for a couple of reasons. One, they need every single point (laughs) just to make the play-in game. (laughs) He's not playing for playoff positioning. He's playing for the playoffs. And so there is this impetus to not just, you know, play extremely well, but to score as much as possible because that is a very challenged team. They're currently in ninth place. They're below 500. There's a good chance they won't finish the year 500. They got 41 losses as of now at the time we're recording this. So he's going to have to continue to play at this level just for them to make the postseason. He certainly doesn't want to, like, miss the postseason Again, as a Laker. So so you got to think that he's more driven to try to score more points just because he thinks that would help the outcome. But I also think the opposite works in his favor as well, which is they're going to come a point in which both the 76ers and the Bucks are locked into their playoff positioning. And thus, you know, if you're a franchise owner, team president, coach, do you risk injuring your team's MVP just so they can try to win a, an individual scoring title. So I'm going with LeBron on this one. Yeah, you know, I will go with LeBron too, but not exactly for the same reason. I do think that he has to score for them to win, but also he can score even if they don't win because that's actually kind of what's gotten it to this point. Zach Lowe talked about this on his podcast the other day about how he's noticed a little bit of a difference with LeBron once it became clear, oh, we're not doing anything this year. LeBron's one of the smartest, if not the smartest, basketball player to ever play. He knows this game. He knows what his team is. We can argue his culpability or lack thereof or how much of his fault it is that he doesn't have a great team around him. But he doesn't have a great team around him. He clearly knows that. Right. So what are you going to get? He said it. Yeah. Like, yeah, like what are you going to get out of this year? LeBron is a guy that does think about legacy, does think about these things. Clearly got a kick out of passing Carl Malone. And I get it. I would be the same way. I think there's nothing wrong with him doing that. The idea of him winning a scoring title 14 years after he won the last one at 37, when Jordan, when he returned was, uh, he still averaged more than 20 points a game, but like no one looked at Jordan and said, oh, there's a, obviously an NBA all pro. It was not at the top of his game for LeBron to be able to win the scoring title. Like what else is he doing this year? You argue that you don't want him to miss the playoffs. Well, are we counting the play-in game as playoffs? Are we sure the play-in game counts as making the playoffs? This team is not winning a title. Even if Davis comes back, that would be an amazing story. But LeBron's not stupid. It seems like he's unleashing his inner Kobe and his inner Jordan in a way that we've not always seen him do. I don't think I've ever seen LeBron shoot more fadeaways that I've seen him shoot this year. He is like, okay, yes, I know the best way for us to win is for me to score. Also, the best way for me to win a scoring title is for me to score. And I think it is totally reasonable for him. LeBron has earned the right to say, you know what? Go ahead. Sit Embiid. Sit Giannis. Lock their number in. 
LeBron's going to go into his last game of the year knowing exactly how many points he needs yep. to win that scoring title, and he's going to get that many, and it's going to be super fun. I'm sure there are grumpy Gusses out there who will not find that enjoyable. But like, for how much fun would it be to watch LeBron be like, oh, you need 56 in this otherwise pretty much meaningless game, 56 Get that, you win this first scoring title. Who wouldn't want to watch and see LeBron try to get 56 points? That would be an absolute blast to watch. So that's why I think he's going to win as well. You know, the thing that's so interesting to me about LeBron is that remember when he told everyone that if he wanted to, he could leave the league in scoring whenever he wanted to? Yeah, I think people laughed at him when he said that, too. And he, people laughed at him because <laughs> they didn't think he was a walking bucket. Yeah. He's already scored more points than anyone who's ever played the game in the regular season and in the playoffs. He passed that mark weeks ago. Now he's chasing down the regular season mark set by Kareem. And if you were to ask a bunch of guys and gals in the barbershop or whatever to name like a walking bucket in the NBA, which I have from time to time, Bron's name doesn't come up. <laughs> How is that possible, Will, <laughs> that the game's greatest scorer isn't considered a great scorer? <laughs> and there's a branding thing to this, right? Like when LeBron first came in the league, we had gotten used to marketing scorers. That was the whole idea, right? That was the way you score, whether they were dunking, whether shooting a three-pointer, whether you were bouncing the ball off the ceiling and uh, to play a game of horse for a McDonald's commercial. It was all about putting the ball in the bucket. And LeBron's whole thing was he's got court vision. There was an old Nike commercial with Bernie Mac, I believe, where mm -hmm. it was in a church and everyone was dancing around. He was bouncing the ball off the pews and it was really, really fun. But the whole point was like, how do we market a guy who is not inherently a scorer, who has court vision rather than someone that's just trying to get points, which to me is just another thing about LeBron. He's obviously a great scorer. He's going to end up being the best scorer of all time. I still don't think that scoring is the thing that he's best at. <laughs> and, and, which is really kind of amazing, right? Like it's amazing. <laughs> I'm listening to you and, I'm, and I, and I want to argue with you. I do, but I go, but you kind of have a point. If someone's been to the finals 10 times and their greatest play might be a block in those 10 visits yeah. to the NBA finals, yeah. despite the fact that he's averaged 35, 36, 37, 38 points a game in a series in the NBA finals. And yet when I think about his greatest play, I go, oh, the block, the block, yeah. the block. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know if that's about how spectacular of an overall player he is, or I don't know how much of that is just based on, you know, some sort of weird characterization when he first got into the league. But the man has never not averaged 20 points a game. Yeah, he scores He's constantly. never not averaged 20 <laughs> points a game. He's averaged 25 points a game like the last, like, what, 15, 16 yeah. seasons? <laughs> and he's made himself into a great shooter. Like, he's a better scorer than he was when he got in the league, right? He's basically expanded his game across the board. And it's funny, we look at the other two people that are going against him in, in this. To me, the fact that Giannis is here, even though Giannis still kind of can't shoot. <laughs> I'm glad that Giannis has gotten that out of that out of his head. There was a stretch like two or three years ago, all the analytic people were like, yes, Giannis is good. But how about we take this guy that is bigger, faster, stronger, and this wild octopus on the court who can do everything, 
what if we just made him a three-point shooter? <laughs> and I'm glad that you know, I was like, no, no, I'm just going to go ahead. No, and, no I'm not doing that. No. And, I, and it's made him better. It's made his team better. And it's made him this great score. And Embiid, who can shoot, Embiid can shoot, but like clearly that's not the immediate part of his game. The idea that a center would do it. It's funny to think of these three people in this battle. None of them are that two guard, right? None of them are that Iverson. None of them are that Jordan. In the past, 20 years ago, when you thought of a scorer, that's who you thought of. You thought of Kobe. You thought of Penny Hardaway back in the day. You thought of Tracy McGrady. You thought of people like that. Now, in this analytical game, the top scorers are not that traditional scoring spot. And all of them are good at other things. When we did the intro, uh, we talked about Alex English, right? Alex English was a scorer and that was all yes. he was. And and a very bad actor. Remember that movie he was in about nuclear war? Amazing Grace and Chuck. That's actually a true story. There was a movie called Amazing Grace and Chuck where Alex English played a fictional basketball player who quit playing basketball to get rid of nuclear proliferation. Why won't you do that, LeBron? Why wow. won't you quit to stop? Space Jam 3, <laughs> the end of nukes. Yeah, that's. I think it's the plot of Superman 5, I think as well. Anyway, the more of the point is uh, those are all like pure scores. To me, that's one of the most fun things about the scoring race. Not only are these guys great scorers, they're so good at so many other things, it makes it that much more fun to watch them score that many points. I have one last question for you, my friend, about this topic. If LeBron James doesn't win the scoring title, are you still impressed by what he was able to do? I'm impressed that he's still putting forth this much energy with that team where they are at. Good for him, man. I got to, when we win the championship, you're going to eat uh, those words. I, I got, I'm just saying, I don't know if I'd be able to do it. At a certain level, if I've done all the things that LeBron has already done in his career, and I'm on this team fighting for the possibility to play a play-in game to a play-in game to then get crushed by the sun, <laughs> there's not a lot of help around that team. If I were LeBron... I'd be like, you know what? I gave it the office for like 20 years. I'm taking some personal time. I'm taking some load management. We'll try this again in the offseason. The fact that he's still out there in incredible, perfect shape, still being all the things that LeBron has been for so long, it's remarkable that he has the mental fortitude to even be in this conversation. People have given up for a lot less (laughs) at the end of seasons. I don't think there's any question about it. He's still out there plugging. I think it's amazing. You're going to be eating those words when AD gets back. Don't you give the NBA scoring champion some help, damn it. (laughs) I do think of all the things LeBron has done, if he wins a championship this year, I do actually think that's his greatest achievement. (laughs) I'd like to go down and say (laughs) it is actually his greatest achievement if he pulls that off. It would also be the greatest achievement if I pulled that off, but that's not happening either. Okay, Will, now that we're done talking about basketball, let's talk about basketball. (laughs) It's time for this week in sports history where we break down an event from the past through the lens of 2022. Thank you, Dick. I am with two very, very happy, happy people here, Magic and Judd. Magic, not only were you a leader on offense, I thought you did a great job on Larry Bird in the zone denying him the ball. Yes, uh, Coach uh, gave us a good game plan to go against Larry Bird, and all we had to do was go out and do it. And if we did it, he said we would win. That's what we done. That was a victorious Magic Johnson after he led Michigan State to a 75-64 victory against Indiana State and Larry Bird in the legendary 1979 NCAA championship game. Beginning a rivalry between the two superstars that would last for another 13 years and eventually transform the NBA. 
Bird, and Magic were the two most exciting college players at the time, and Indiana State was still trying to finish the season undefeated, so it's no surprise that 40 million people watched the event on television and that its 24.1 Nielsen rating is still the highest ever for a basketball game of any kind. Just as a point of comparison, the average TV rating for the NBA Finals last year was 5.1. Bird and Magic would later get drafted by iconic NBA franchises that have fallen on hard times, Bird by the Boston Celtics and Magic by the LA Lakers, and eventually faced off against each other in three epic NBA Finals in the 1980s that set the sports world on fire, supercharged the league's star power, and dramatically escalated its reach and popularity. When Bird and Magic joined the NBA, the finals were broadcast late at night on tape delay. But when these guys showed up and started playing against each other, they dominated primetime. Will, it's hard to overstate how much of an impact they had on the league and how much money they made for so many people associated with the game. Where would the NBA be right now without Bird and Magic? Uh, I mean, a lot less fun. The long idea about this is that like Bird and Magic begat Jordan, which begat everything, right? You know, whenever I look back at the story, I always it always feels because I was very young when all this happened. I was before I was even really into sports that much. Jordan was only like five years after this. For some reason, it feels like Magic and Bird were from like a different epoch altogether. And then right. Jordan was like this launch of the future. But it was only five years later. <laughs> it was only five years later that, that Jordan uh, came into the NBA. But I think that speaks to what they kind of laid down. The idea of you can't watch an NBA game, you know, it's never the Denver Nuggets against the Portland Trailblazers. It's the stars, right? It's LeBron James and the Los Angeles Lakers against Joel Embiid and the Philadelphia 76ers. And it will always kind of feel that way. And watch a lot of highlights of 1973's NBA. It's possible that there was a lot of, it's Jack Sigma. And, uh, but I doubt it. But I doubt it. It's probably the best way to put it. Jack it, Sigma had great footwork, by the it, way. And incredible hair, by the way. Incredible Truly, curly incredible hair. It was weird, right? hair. I'm sure we'll talk about this in this conversation, but I've been watching uh, Winning Time, the show on HBO. And yeah. I think the thing that thing gets really right is the notion that the NBA is a sport that once it's exciting and it's played by people basically running around in their pajamas, right? There's no helmets to cover them. They're literally wearing a tank top and shorts and you're seeing them in their purest form and they are stars. There's something beautiful about the game and there's something beautiful about the individual notion of it. And it feels like they were a lot of that transition, marked that transition from that old John Wooden thing who I think the New York Times Magazine once called as close to Jesus Christ as the sport of basketball can ever have. That kind of old Wizard of Westwood stuff. It feels like a transition into what the NBA and basketball and really all of sports were going to be, which was something a lot more fun, a lot less controlled by guys with rulers and peach baskets. Like they represented that individual thing, even though they were both consummate team players, but they were superstars to watch. They were electric, both of the magic more so. But I think what Larry Bird represented, things both good and bad, meant a lot to a lot of people as well. So I think the fact that those two people seem to transition the league out of this bounce pass, short, tight shorts, into the electric league that I think we continue to see today, it's funny how much different their time feels from really everything that came after it. I think that without Magic and Bird... I'm not sure if the NBA would have survived. Even though Jordan was only five short seasons later, 
after that 1979 clash and then obviously going into the league, the NBA was being preempted by, I believe it was Dallas and the Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> Dallas was fine, by the way. All right for I, Dallas. And I do believe there were reruns of those shows. <laughs> they weren't even like the first run. Right, right. Like the NBA Finals was on pause so that we could watch the Dukes of Hazard right, first. Right. And what the NBA was able to do, in my opinion, was tapped into something that boxing was able to do, which is flirt with racism and make it marketable. <laughs> <laughs> and... I know that sounds disgusting and parts of it is disgusting, but if, even if you look at boxing today and some mixed martial arts as well, but certainly still in boxing, they still flirt with racism I mean, <laughs> when it comes to marketing the sport <laughs> right. and promoting the sport. You know, Conor McGregor yeah. obviously flirts with, with some racist tropes quite often when he tries to antagonize his opponents yeah. and it plays. Yeah. You know, it plays. And when it comes to the NBA, they didn't have to say it, right? Ain't nobody in Detroit growing up in the 80s rocking Boston Celtics shit. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's not what we did, dog. Isn't that like one of the great punchlines of Do the Right Thing? Is the yes. guy the guy not only comes down the street on his bike, he's got a bird jersey on. <laughs> like <laughs> Right, exactly. I mean... We're not saying that, you know, Bird was a racist, no. obviously. But what we are saying is that Boston had a racist history. And the media's embrace and celebration of Larry Bird was warranted because he's an outstanding player. But it was also undergirded by that racial history within sports journalism, within the country as a whole. And that played a part into it as well. And... The NBA was able to thread that line where they sort of marketed black versus white, but they just said Celtics versus Lakers. Yes. But we all knew what the fuck yes. they were talking Los about. Los Angeles against Boston. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> the city of diversity and Latinos mm -hmm. and blacks and all that history and, yes. and the pizzazz and liberalism, yes. if you will, versus Sully. the blue. <laughs> right, right. Versus, versus Ben Affleck, yeah. or whatever the fuck you want to say. Like, <laughs> right. it, it, like, we know exactly what they were trying to do when they were marketing these two. So they were lucky in the sense that, one, they were outstanding basketball players. Two of the greatest to ever pick up the ball. And at one point, you could have argued that Bird was the greatest in the early days of the 80s. Three straight MVPs. He was a walking bucket excellent rebounder and passer. We hadn't seen that in a big man like that with Larry Bird. Magic obviously wasn't quite the scorer that Bird was, especially early on, but he had the pizzazz and he played great team basketball and he made the Lakers fun to watch. But there was also the racial element to it. And I think the NBA did a really good job of nodding their head to it, which helped increase the popularity of the rivalry between the two of them, for better or for worse. Yeah, and listen, Bird, in a lot of ways, I think for a lot of people, represented that John Wooden thing, right? There's a great joke about this is Bird was like as great a trash talker and like would do oh, all God, sorts yeah. of things that those kind of coaches would have totally hated. Right. But that's not what Bird represented for them. Bird represented right. something different. I'm curious, now that I have you, what do you think of winning time? I'm still going through yeah. it. It's a tough one for me because... I consider Jeff Perlman a friend, and he is the author of the source material yeah. for it. I think Adam McKay is one of the geniuses in terms of cinematic filmmaking, 
cinematic filmmakers <clears throat> or any kind of cinematic anything besides filmmaking? Why did I say uh, like well, that? Well, he's not, he's not making <laughs> cinema, but uh, anyway, go ahead. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that the story is compelling and that the performances are really engaging. But I also consider Jenny Buss to be a friend. And I grew up idolizing Magic, who's from, Mm -hmm. you know, Lansing, Michigan, which is not too far from Detroit. And there's a mean-spiritedness about winning time that makes me uncomfortable because of those relationships that I have. Yeah, there's a glibness to it. It's definitely a series, unlike Jeff, by the way, (laughs) who will veer toward entertainment and style at the sake of truth. I don't think there's any question about that. And whatever the filmmakers would say, yeah, I know it's not a documentary. We're just trying right. to have fun here. Listen, Jason Clark, who plays Jerry West, is from all accounts not actually playing what Jerry West is like. No, not based playing- upon what I know. <laughs> can certainly understand if I were Jerry West or I were someone in that organization and being like, I'm actually still a person walking around the world and someone will see me on that show and say, wait, did that really happen? And I have to deal with that for the rest of my life now. I find the show glib, but glibly entertaining would probably be the best way to put it. No, it's definitely entertaining. As I said, I'm just really conflicted by it because particularly when it comes to Jeannie, who I really adore, like... They make her look not like the genie that I She's know. mousier that in that show than I think that she is in real life, I think is a fair assessment. Yeah, yeah. And, and Jerry West, the joke about him being cranky. I mean, sure, you could say he's cranky definitely now when it comes to his relationship with the Lakers franchise. But he's he, he's not like that. I, I don't think there is, are there people like that. <laughs> like, like, like he really is like yeah he's he's like the anger guy in Inside Out in every single segment right. that he is on that show. Like I don't think people are actually like that in real life. And that's our show for this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to The Long Game with LZ and Leach. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in Tuesday, March 29th at 12.30 p.m. for our next live simulcast on Twitch at twitch.tv slash the recount. That's twitch.tv slash the recount. And on both the recount Twitter and recount YouTube platforms. The Long Game is produced by Pierre Bienname, Megan Burney, Mark Levine, and Marshall Weiser. Music is by Gloria Tells, with some sound design by David Wilson. We'll be back with another podcast next Wednesday, in which case we'll be that much farther away from me ever having to think about Illinois basketball. It hurts. It hurts. You'll be fine. I know, it'll be fine. Baseball starts. Baseball starts.